morning. Uh, if, if you would, please go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 115. We're going to be looking at uh, verse 3 to, to jump off this morning. Psalm 115, verse 3. And we're continuing our short series titled, Who We Are. Uh, and the purpose of this series is to remind us of why this congregation exists and what we are to proclaim and do as the people of God. And this morning, we come to the subject of the sovereignty of God. This church exists to declare the sovereignty of God. But what is that? Right? What is the sovereignty of God? Well, A.W. Pink, uh, he's a 20th century author, he wrote a very famous book called The Sovereignty of God, very creative title. Uh, and, and he begins his book with a very good definition of God's sovereignty. Let me, let me read a bit of a lengthy quotation from it. The sovereignty of God. What do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. How different is the God of the Bible from the God of modern Christendom? End quote. He wrote that in 1913, I believe. How different is the God of the Bible from the God of modern Christendom? Many people, many Christians say that they believe in the sovereignty of God. But do they? Do they really? Push on them and you'll find out. Ask them if God ordains all that comes to pass, even sin and suffering. Ask them if he chooses whom he will save and whom he will leave in their sin. Ask them if God determined in eternity past every single thing that would happen in history. Ask them. And if they answer no to anything, then they do not believe in the sovereignty of God, or at least not in the way that they should, according to the Bible. Um, consider... For, for example, many modern views of God, some of these are even popular among professing evangelical Christians. Um, this idea that God is, is wringing his holy hands in heaven, wondering what man will do. Wondering if man will choose him. Wondering what we're going to do next. This idea that, uh, another one, is that God is unable to change the wills of men. That he can, and there have been some very famous preachers say this, God can do anything except interfere with your will. That God is in some ways uh, bound by the wills of men. That he, he cannot do whatever he wants because of human autonomy or human freedom. Uh, or this idea that God is reacting, right? That God reacts to the things that happen in history and that God is, is trying to keep things together so men don't destroy his plan, right? That every day his plan and purposes for the world is threatened, by what men do, and so God has to react and make sure that everything goes how he wants. 
Or this, and this is very, very, very common, that God knows the future, but that he has not ordained it. That, he, oh, that all he has is a simple foreknowledge of the future, but not that he has decreed what will take place. Brothers and sisters, I don't mean to be harsh, but such views are nonsense according to the word of God. They are nonsense, and some of them, some of them are just misguided errors, but some of them are blasphemous. God is sovereign, and we're going to see that today from his word. God is God, as A.W. Pink said. God is the only being who is absolutely free. Man's will and actions and choices are creaturely, which means they are subject to God's sovereign rule and his sovereign will. So all things that come to pass come to pass because God and his sovereignty has determined and decreed everything. That's what we're going to see from the word of God today. And just to be honest with you for a moment, apart from the message of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, this is my favorite doctrine, period, to preach on. It's my favorite doctrine to preach on. It is majestic. It is humbling. It is awe-inspiring. It's worship-inducing. It encourages the fear of the Lord. It moves us to reverence. It makes us submit. It teaches us to trust. It reminds us of who we are as creatures and who God is as the creator. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan theologian, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. It's one of my favorite quotes. So that's what I plan to do this morning is to show you the sovereignty of God over all things from various portions of Scripture. And I hope to do so in such a way, not to bombard you with 10 or 15 texts of Scripture, but my my purpose is to show you that this glorious truth is inescapable if you're going to honestly read the Bible and take God at his word. And I don't mean that harshly. But it is inescapable if we're reading the Bible honestly. Now, I want to be clear that this sermon will not... (laughs) be an exhaustive treatment on the sovereignty of God and all the derivative things that come with it. Uh, Better men than I could preach a month's worth of Sundays on this topic and still have something left to say. Um, So this sermon is uh, undoubtedly going to cause many of you, especially those of you who have not come to embrace uh, the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty in its fullness, this sermon is going to make you have questions, right? Questions about God's relation to sin, questions about human freedom, and free will, and other things, Uh, questions about God's justice, and his righteousness, and I'm not going to even try to answer them, at least not many of them, maybe one or two, but not even nearly all of them, but what, what I want to do this morning is nail down for you the foundational truth of scripture that God is sovereign, and we can pick up the pieces later. Right? And a lot of us who have accepted this doctrine years ago have been picking up the pieces for 10, 15, 20 years. <laughs> right? We're always picking up the pieces because this, this doctrine makes us ask a lot of questions. But before we can move on to untangling certain difficult and tough questions, before we can move on to those questions, we have to first clearly see that he is sovereign and then deal with the questions later. So what we're going to do this morning is what is commanded of us. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20 reads, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. It's because they have no light. So to the word of God we go. The word is our standard. Please hear me, this is going to be so important. The word of God is our standard, not our finite, tiny-minded, faulty, fallible human reasoning. 
Rather, our standard is what God has said about himself and his sovereign rule in his word. So we're going to make our case and rest it there. And my prayer now and through this week has been that we would all see this truth and that we wouldn't just see it uh, how, how many of us maybe saw it f- at first. Uh, th- that is begrudgingly, right? Some of you guys ever come to that while you're studying God's sovereignty? You're like, well, I guess, right? I don't want that to be it. But rather that we would gladly receive, believe, and rejoice in the sovereignty of God and be moved to worship him for it. And that from there we would be even more motivated to declare to the world the blessed, glorious truth about the Godhood of God. Because that's what his sovereignty is. So with that said, now if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our sovereign God, we come before you and humbly ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. Open our eyes to the truth. Open our hearts to receive it. Help us to believe even the hard things that you've said. Help us to submit our thinking to your word in all things. Give us a glimpse of your majesty this morning. Sanctify us by your truth as our Lord Jesus prayed. Your word is truth. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Um, What I want to do is begin with a, a few texts that make general statements concerning the sovereignty of God. So we'll start with the one that we just read. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In context, this psalm, Psalm 115, has to do, as, as, as you saw the scripture reading uh, before, before we sung, uh, this psalm has to do with declaring the supremacy of God over the idols of the nations. Right? It asserts God's sovereign rule while at the same time declaring that all the gods of the nations are false gods and are powerless to do anything. And in verse 2 of Psalm 115, the question is posed, why should the nations say, where is their God? Right? The nations mock the people of God and ask, where is your God? And they ask that because they have idols, right? statues of wood and silver and gold, but the people of God have no statues Right? Our God is spirit and invisible and has forbidden images of him. And so what is our reply supposed to be? Where is your God? Our God is in the heavens. Right? That's our first answer. Our God is in the heavens. Our God is high above the earth. As Paul says to Timothy, he is invisible. He is transcendent. Right? What, what does it mean he's in the heavens? He's transcendent. He's over the whole created order. He's not bound to one particular nation, but he is God over all the nations, even the heathen nations that mock him. They cannot touch him. He looks down upon them from heaven, ruling over all, and he does whatever he pleases, the psalmist says. Everything he wants to do, he does. That's good. He doesn't ask for permission. He is in the heavens. High above the earth, robed in majesty, robed in power. He doesn't consult with the people of earth, does he? He does whatever he pleases. He doesn't ask for advice from his creatures. Rather, he does what he wants. Unlike the gods of the nations that can't hear, see, smell, speak, feel, or move, our God does whatever he wants while they cannot do anything. He executes all his good pleasure. He executes all his will, whatever he pleases. Why? 
Because he is God. Because he's God. This is a declaration of total sovereignty. Nobody tells him anything. He does whatever he pleases, and he rules over all things from heaven. And notice in verse 3 here, there's no limitation in this verse, is there? There's no limitations. It does not say he does whatever he pleases so long as it doesn't conflict with the will of men. It doesn't say that. It does not say he does whatever he pleases in some areas but not all. No, there are no limitations here because he does as he pleases always in all things forever. God is sovereign. And he expresses this, his kingly dominion over all things at all times. So that's Psalm 115 verse 3. But let's turn now to Isaiah chapter 46 verses 8 through 10. And we see there, uh, what, what I want to do is turn to a couple other texts that show us that God not only does what he wants but that he has a plan and purpose for all things that he's working out. And in the book of Isaiah, it's, it's one of the, my favorite books of the Old Testament, the longer that I'm a Christian, God spends a pretty good amount of time mocking and challenging the idols of the nations. Right? It, it's, it's actually really funny. God is really, really sarcastic sometimes with the idols of the nations. Um, and one of the things that, that God brings up again is he challenges these false gods. He brings up that he is the only one who can predict the future. More than that, he is the one who has planned the future, and that is why he can predict it. And in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10, we read this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. And from there, God goes on to give an example of him doing this uh, by using a pagan king. And that's what the rest of the chapter is about. But I want you to see the importance of what God just said in that text about his sovereignty. He says that he has a purpose. He says he has a purpose. That is, he has a plan that he is working out in the world. And it's a plan that originated where? In his counsel. In his counsel. It began in his mind. God did not make his plan according to the counsel or input of others. As Paul says in Romans 11, who has given counsel to the Lord? God's plan, his purposes come from him. And he says that he will indeed accomplish everything that he has purposed to do. He will accomplish everything that he has planned to do, all of it. And this, brothers and sisters, is why God declares the end from the beginning. He declares the end of all things from the beginning because he has a plan and everything that comes to pass is part of it. That's why he can declare the end from the beginning. And the beginning here is a reference to the beginning of all things. Right? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Right? This is the beginning of all things. Before there was anything, there was God's plan. His purposes for creation. And so he can declare how things are going to be because he has planned how they are going to be. God has a plan. He has purposes for the world. He will bring it all to pass. The text says, his counsel shall stand. 
And I'm grateful for, for a really good Reformed Baptist preacher. His name's Albert Martin. You should check him out. He's a better preacher than me. He, he, in preaching this text, he says, notice that he doesn't say his foreknowledge shall stand, as if it's, I, I know what's going to happen and I just know it and therefore it must happen. No, this isn't about God just knowing the future. It's deeper than just a bare foreknowledge, as our confession speaks of. It is his counsel that will stand, his decree that will stand. His will that will stand. His plan that will stand. He knows the future and his counsel will stand because he has planned all of it. God is sovereign. And now we turn our attention to one final text that shows that God has a purpose that he's working out. Very famous one, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. And there we read, I know I'm, I'm faster than all of you because I haven't written down already. In Ephesians 1.11, the apostle Paul says this. In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to his counsel. Now, in the immediate context, the Apostle Paul is saying that we believers have obtained an inheritance, that is salvation, because we were predestined by God to obtain it. That's sovereignty. God predestined us for salvation before we were born, and we'll get to that later. But then Paul says something broad about God's sovereignty. He says we were predestined according to the purpose, according to God's purpose. The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In short, Paul says that God predestines and works all things. Underline that. All things according to his counsel. That is his plan, his will. Again, this means that God doesn't just know all things that will happen. He doesn't just know what's going to happen. Rather, he has predestined all things and so works all things according to his plan that he has made in eternity past. God is sovereign. He decreed the future before time even began. And even now, he's working in creation to bring it about, bring all his plans about that he has decreed. He controls everything. And this harmonizes very well with our first text, doesn't it? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. But how far does this sovereignty extend? Right now, I recognize that I've already said God is sovereign over everything that comes to pass. Right? I've said everything already. Um, uh, and that much has been proven from the three texts that we've looked at. But what, what I want you to do is I want you to see this explicitly and thoroughly from the word of God. Because the kingly dominion and rule of God, his ability to execute all of his plans and decrees, his sovereignty, is the heartbeat of the entire Bible. Right? It, the heartbeat of the whole thing. I think the, uh, when I, I, I say this a bit jokingly, I have to think about it more, but I think the only things that are more clear than the sovereignty of God in Scripture is that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died and was raised from the dead on the third day. I think that's about the only thing that's more clear in Scripture than God's complete sovereignty. So what I'm going to do now is we're going to consider nine specific areas that God is sovereign over, uh, and I'm going to try to be brief um, with, with all of them. Uh, I actually had 11, and I cut two of them out. I, I, I cut this thing down about 15 minutes. It was going to be like an hour and 15 minutes, but we all watch films. You'll be cool. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to try to go through this quickly. But nine things 
and I'm, I'm excluding the natural world and the animal kingdom because that's not uh, controversial among Christians. And if you don't believe that God's sovereign over the natural world and the animal kingdom, read Genesis 1 through 8 and Exodus 1 through 12 and then repent of your unbelief because God is in, in control of the entire natural order. Um, but anyway, uh, first, what's the first thing I want us to see? God is sovereign over kingdoms. Kingdoms. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, God is giving a prophecy concerning a king who hadn't been born yet. A king named Cyrus, the same king that would send the Jews back to Israel and pay for them to rebuild the temple and their city, uh, or rather Jerusalem. This king named Cyrus. And God says this, Isaiah 45, 1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Notice that God had anointed Cyrus. You anoint kings. He had anointed Cyrus as king of Persia before he was even born. What does that mean? God chose who was going to be king over the kingdom. He chose Cyrus. That shows us that God is sovereign over who will be in power and who will rule over the nations. God chooses kings. And there's a whole lot more. Daniel 2.21, the entire fourth chapter of Daniel, Daniel 6, or rather Daniel 5. Right? There's a whole lot of spots in the Bible, but here's just one. God chooses kings. And then God says this. He says that he has taken Cyrus by the right hand. He's given Cyrus power. Power to do what? Subdue nations and loose the belts of kings to take away their kingliness from them. God is saying that he will make Cyrus a mighty conqueror of nations. That Cyrus will strike down other kings and rule over their nations. This means that God determines when nations will rise and when they will gain power like Cyrus and his kingdom. And God also then determines when nations will fall and be taken captive by other nations like the nation Cyrus was going to conquer. And remember... That all of this happens because God has grasped Cyrus's right hand to make it prosper. Listen, what I'm getting at is it's not just a bare foreknowledge that God just says, well, I know what's going to happen. No, God says I'm going to take his right hand and make sure that it happens. God says he's going to ensure it because it is his will. God controls all nations. He controls when they rise and when they fall. He controls who our leaders are, and he appoints them himself for his own holy purposes, even for judgment. In Isaiah chapter 3, I believe it is, God says, I will give them children to rule over them. God can judge nations by giving them awful rulers. Does that sound familiar to you right now? Men, though, the point is men do not control their own nations. And kings ultimately do not govern their own nations. The nations of the world are subject to the will of God and his plans for them. That's the first thing. Second thing I want us to see is that God is sovereign over wealth and poverty. He determines who gets what. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. In that text, we read this. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings lowly, or rather he brings low and he exalts. God determines who gets what. Quick note here, I'm going to get political because our religion is inherently political. We proclaim that Jesus is the king of kings. Uh, 
Communists hate God. Why? Because God is sovereign over economic prosperity. Because God determines who gets what. And if your worldview says everyone has to have the exact same amount, you are at odds with God's sovereign, uh, sovereignty to give, to give whatever he wants to whomever he wills. Just throwing that out there. Christianity and communism are incompatible. But God determines what disparities will exist between people. He does. God chooses, the text says very clearly, God chooses who will be wealthy and who will be poor. Let's bring this down a little bit. He determines whether or not you're going to get the raise that you had hoped for. He determines where we'll work and how much we're going to make. He determines what economic hardships we're going to have to endure. Right? Those, those surprise, like, oh, man, well, like in a bad like stroke of luck, my car broke down and my air conditioner. It wasn't a stroke of luck. God determines who's going to be rich and poor. He determined your economic hardships. He also decides whether or not you're born into wealthy, poor, or middle-income families. Right? God determines economic statuses. And obviously, please hear this. this is, you'll need to keep this in your pocket as you're considering politics in our, in our nation right now. Obviously, God does not feel obligated to make all men financially equal, does he? Because they're not. And he's the one who makes people rich and poor. God determines economic statuses. The riches of the world belong to God. As the psalmist says, the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. And so he gives wealth to whom he wills as he wills. God is sovereign over money and how much each person gets. A third thing, God is sovereign, we're starting to get a little bit deeper now, God is sovereign over sickness and health. Once again, or rather for the first time, let me reference this, uh, we, we, we see this in the plagues of Egypt, right, don't we? God sent disease upon the livestock and they died, and then God sent boils upon the Egyptians and struck them with disease. God, God sent disease and made people sick in Egypt. There's no getting around it. He did that. Let's see another one. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. We see it again. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. The, that might make you uncomfortable, and I get it. Right? I, I, I get it. God afflicted the child. That makes us uncomfortable, but the text explicitly says that God did it. David's baby got sick. Why? Because God made the baby sick. There's no getting around it. The Lord afflicted the child. Now, there are many, and you'll especially see this on Facebook from time to time, and I don't mean to sound harsh, but there are many who foolishly say things like this. God doesn't have anything to do with disease and sickness. That's all the devil. Have you guys heard that before? It's always just the devil. But such foolish people have to reckon with this text that says the opposite. God afflicted the child. God determines who gets sick with what and when. God tells Moses, I believe it's in Exodus 3, I make people deaf and I make them mute and I make them blind. God determines who's going to get sick, what they're going to be sick with, and when they're going to be sick. And to say otherwise is to blaspheme God because you're saying that God is not in control of disease. And if God is not in control of disease, then who is? God determines who gets sick and how. But not only that, God also determines healing too. I won't read you this text, but in 2 Kings chapter 20, 
You can read about King Hezekiah and how he was sick unto death, but he prayed for God to heal him. And in verse 5, God says he will spare Hezekiah's life, heal him, and give him 15 more years to live. What does that mean? It means God is sovereign over healing just as he is sovereign over sickness. He determines who will be healed, by what means they will be healed, whether it be ordinary means of human medicine or whether it will be an immediate miraculous healing from God. He determines what means they'll be healed with and when they will be healed with. And since God determines who will be healed and not all are healed, what does that mean? God determines who will not be healed. Our health is in the hands of God. Our bodies are subject to his sovereign rule and decree. But not only sickness, a fourth thing. God is sovereign over suffering in general. In the book of Job, chapter 1, we read this in verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he, that is Job, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And Satan did things, apparently, under the sovereign rule of God that resulted in the death of Job's children and the, the, the loss of all of his wealth. And then Satan goes back to the Lord and says, a man will give anything for his health. Let me take his health from him. And the Lord said, you can take his health from him, but you cannot take his life. What I want you to see is that Job suffered horribly, right? And, and in this example, Satan was the active agent here, Right? We, but we read that God allowed it. Could God have told Satan no? Sure. He could have told him no, but he didn't. He allowed it. God could have stopped it, but he didn't. And he was the only one that could have stopped it, but he chose not to. What must we conclude then? Job's suffering must have been part of God's purposes in the world, or he would not have, he would not have allowed it, because he's sovereign. He's sovereign. Every single thing that we suffer, and I'm not saying that all of our suffering comes from the devil either. There are texts that I can show you where God sends pestilence upon people. Again, the Egyptians, God sent sickness upon them, where we see that God takes the life of people, right? So it's not just the devil. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. But what we see then is that every single thing that we suffer, from the smallest to the greatest, in the words of John Piper, from criticism to cancer, everything comes ultimately from the will of God over our lives. There's no getting around it. Suffering could not fall upon us apart from God's will, just as suffering could not fall upon Job apart from God's will. Our Lord Jesus tells us not a hair on our head can be touched apart from the will of our Father. Not a sparrow can fall from the sky apart from Him. And so everything that causes us pain ultimately is part of his sovereign will and plan for us and the world. God is sovereign over our suffering. So whatever happens to us is under the control and plan of our God. A fifth thing. We're going to start getting real controversial here. We see that God is sovereign over the choices of men. Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he, God, wherever he will. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart's like a river. If you guys ever watch like drone footage going 
along a river. Rivers turn and bend, and just as a river bends and turns throughout the land, God turns and bends the heart of kings wherever he wants their hearts to go. And hear me, some people say, well, that's just kings. If it's true of kings who have the most power and sovereignty, humanly speaking, on earth, if God controls kings, if God bends their hearts to do as he wills, then how much more does God control the hearts of those of us who are not kings? A king who can decree that someone die and they die? If God's sovereign over them, is God not sovereign over you, middle-class American? Of course he is. Of course he is. God bends and turns the hearts of all men according to his will. That's the point here. And listen, this may make you uncomfortable, and I sincerely get it. I get it. But the Bible is telling us here in this proverb, and again, I'm being very selective. I can show you a whole lot more, but we just don't have time. The, The Bible is telling us that all of our decisions, even our very wills, are subject to the will of God. Now hear me. I just taught this in my small group on Wednesday. You do have a will. You do indeed make choices, and those choices are very much real and very much your own, but they are not free as some people would define it and have you believe. Some Christians like to declare that God has nothing to do with our wills and choices, but according to this text, that is nonsense. God bends, turns, and changes hearts according to his will. Your will, my will, and choices are creaturely. That means that they are under the rule of God. And God has ordained things in such a way that our choices, that are really our choices, are at the same time exactly what God has ordained would come to pass before we were even born. Human beings make choices and do exercise their wills. But all we do has been ordained by God and is subject to his overriding sovereign rule and purposes. God is sovereign over the choices of men. A sixth thing. God is sovereign over sin. He's sovereign over sin. And this is probably one of the most controversial statements that I've made this morning. But the word of God bears this out. In the book of Genesis, we read the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who had the coat of many colors. You guys know this story. And we read how his brothers hated him and sold him into slavery. And then we read how through event after event in his life of slavery and imprisonment, how God was working to protect Joseph's family, the line of Jesus Christ, how God was protecting them from starving to death in a famine. And at the end of all that, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph speaks to his brothers and says this, regarding the fact that they sold him into slavery, Joseph says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, I I want you to, I, I want you to focus, I'm going away from my notes for a second. Some people will read that and, see, and say, see, God took something that was really bad and made it good. No, that is not what the text says. The text does not say that God took an evil thing and then warped it and turned it into good. It's not what it says. What does it say? Joseph is affirming that his brothers sinned against him horribly by selling him into slavery. 
Joseph says, you truly sinned. You were truly responsible for the wickedness that you did against me. It was really evil. But at the exact same time, Joseph says, God meant it for good. But what is it? What is it? It refers to them selling Joseph into slavery. Joseph doesn't say God took something bad and turned it into good. No, he says the exact same action of selling Joseph into slavery was a sin, and yet God had ordained that that action would take place for a good purpose. He doesn't say God took a bad thing and made it good. He said God wanted this to happen for a good reason, and what you still did was evil. God ordained their sin. So then this exact same action of selling Joseph into slavery was a sin, and yet God ordained that action for good. Joseph's brothers were not trying to do the will of God. They did not know that this was God's sovereign purpose. They were acting according to their hatred, and they were sinning. But at the exact same time, God had ordained that they would do so, and God ordained that sinful action to take place for a good purpose. I know that I keep repeating myself on this, but you have to see this. Because what we see then is that even sin has been predestined and ordained by God, and at the same time, God holds sinners responsible for what they do because they truly wanted to do it. There's no getting around this. This is the teaching of the text. And there are many other instances of similar things I could give you in Scripture. All things that come to pass, even sin, are ordained by God. They're part of his plan and purposes. Let me give you one more example of this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we read Peter's preaching. And Peter says, This Jesus delivered up to, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Apostle Peter says that Jesus' death, that is, the death that we glory in, the death that saves sinners, was according to the definite plan, the predestined plan, the purpose and counsel and decree of God. It was prophesied, was it not? It was foretold. It was certain to happen because, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But at the same time, it was also the greatest sin that has ever happened in human history, is it not? The murder of the Son of God. The greatest sin that's ever happened was according to the predestined plan of God. And Peter says that even though it was God's will and plan, that the Jews were responsible for crucifying Jesus. They were still responsible for their actions. So ultimately, we see once again in an even greater way than with Joseph, that God ordains all that comes to pass, even sin, and yet still holds sinners responsible for what they do because they wanted to do it. And maybe you're sitting there saying to yourself, as I did, that doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't make sense. I can't reconcile that in my mind. I can't reconcile that God is sovereign and predestines all that we do, and yet we are still responsible for what we do. I can't figure that out in my mind. I don't understand how that works. I can't reconcile it. And I hear you. But let me ask you this in response. Who asked you to? Who asked you to reconcile those things in your mind? Who asked you to figure them out? God didn't. 
God didn't tell you to do that. God doesn't ask you to understand everything. In fact, he says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. God explicitly tells us in Scripture that there are things that are beyond our finite human reasoning. And there are things that he did not want to tell or explain to us completely. Whether that's because we can't understand them as humans, or he just didn't want to tell us. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He didn't tell us. But what he has told us, we are to believe, submit to, and obey. And the word of God clearly shows us that he is sovereign over sin. And so our responsibility is not to reconcile it. Rather, our responsibility is to believe what he has said and submit to his sovereign decree and man's responsibility. So we submit our reasoning to the word and we believe what he has said. And we see, again, he is sovereign over the sinful, evil actions of men. He has ordained those actions for his own holy and good purposes. And he holds all men responsible for what they do. A seventh thing, we see that God is sovereign over every single detail of our lives. Psalm 139, verse 16, we read, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. King David says very clearly that before he was born, while his substance was still unformed, God didn't just know, but God had written in his book, Every single day of David's life. Before David lived his first, God had already planned out every single day that David would live. Every event, every decision, every hardship, every victory, every everything was written down in God's book before David was born. That is to say, David is affirming that God had predestined every single day of David's life. And what God writes is written in stone. God doesn't change his mind. So God will not change his decree over David's life. And the same is true for us. All of our days were pre-planned by God before we lived. His divine ordination and sovereign purposes, the fingerprints of God are all over our lives before we are even born. We exist because he declared that we would exist. And all that we do has been decreed by him. All that happens throughout the course of our lives has been decreed by him. Listen, do, do we not say, right, like we, we think about our marriages, those of us who are married, and say, you know, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. You obtain favor from the Lord because he, he gave you your wife. And we say, well, God decreed that this would be my wife, and he gave her to me, and he wrote this my wedding day in his book. Yes, and he also wrote the day that you would find out that your aunt has cancer. He wrote every day. The day that you find out your best friend died of a drug overdose. He wrote that day too. He wrote everything. His ordination is all over my life. All over your life. All that happens. Though it may feel like chaos to us. Is not chaos. Because he wrote it first. He's sovereign over literally our entire lives. And notice that this is a psalm of praise. David isn't begrudgingly saying this. Read Psalm 139. He's blessing God the whole way through. David is excited that God has predestined his entire life. 
David's love for God is fanned into flame as he meditates upon the fact that my life is in the hand of God who has chosen everything that will happen to me. This is cause for us to rejoice. Once again, our lives may feel chaotic, but they are not. God has predestined every second of your life. He has planned it and he is sovereign. An eighth thing, God is sovereign over seemingly random events. I love this. There's a whole lot of texts that I could show you. And, but th- this one actually kind of sealed the deal for me about God's sovereignty over everything. Because some, sometimes people say God's sovereign over this and that and this and that, but not everything. That's nonsense. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Let me give you a modern version of that. The dice are rolled and God decides how they fall. You toss a coin, God determines whether it's going to be heads or tails. You draw straws, but God decides who's going to get the short one. And notice, it doesn't say God knows how it's going to fall. It says, the decision of the lot is from God. That means God determines it. What does this mean? Nothing is random. Like literally, and I mean that again, how you're supposed to use the word literally. Literally, nothing is random. Chance does not exist. Coincidence is a myth. Random is not real. Not in a world where there's a sovereign God. The proverb is teaching us that literally every single thing that happens, happens because God has determined it to be so. It's a lesser to greater argument being implied here. If God determines such a seemingly insignificant thing like the rolling of dice, then how much more does God decide the big things that actually matter? And the answer is, well, of course, God must decide everything then. Brothers and sisters, I don't mean to sound harsh here, but to believe in coincidence or chance is to be an atheist. We don't believe in chance. We are Christians. We do not believe in randomness. We believe that everything that comes to pass has been decided by God in advance. We believe, as Charles Spurgeon says, That every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. Everything. He is sovereign. And ninth and lastly, and I know I've been up here for 46 minutes. You're all right. Ninth and lastly, we now come to the glorious truth that God is sovereign over salvation. And, and, And this point is the most controversial of all, but it shouldn't be. Right? It follows from it follows with resistless logic from everything else that I've said. If what I've said is true, and I believe that it is, I believe I've proved it to you from the word. If God has written every day of our lives, if nothing is random, if he is sovereign over our choices, if he determines everything in our lives, then he must have determined who would be saved and who would not be saved. But we don't just need logic to see this. That, that would, might not even be enough because this is so hard to accept at times. God actually says this all over the place in the Bible. But I only have time to show you one place. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. We read the Apostle Paul. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons 
through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The text very plainly declares that God chose us to be in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer, that is, it is because God chose you to be in Christ. Paul literally says it in the text. And when did he choose? The apostle says he chose before the foundation of the world. Before the world existed, he chose. If you're a believer, he chose that you would be saved. He chose that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's salvation language. That's having your sins removed by Christ. That's the only way to be found holy and blameless in the eyes of God. God chose us for it. And then Paul says that God in love predestined us for adoption. That is, God marked us out beforehand from the rest of humanity. Humanity is all one big lump of human beings. God marked out us that we would become his children. And the text says that he did so according to the purpose of his will because it pleased him to do so. Because he wanted to. As we read in the beginning of the sermon, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Before we were born, before God had even created the world, God chose who he would adopt and make holy and blameless in Christ Jesus. In other words, God chose who would be saved. Anyone who has ever been saved or will ever be saved, therefore, is only saved because God chose them and predestined them for it. Just as God chooses and predestines all other things, God also predestines people to salvation. And I know that this is a hard pill to swallow because we know that not all men will be saved. Many will perish. And so we are forced to confess that God has not chosen all men to be saved. He's chosen to save some. And he's chosen to leave others in their sin. He has predestined some unto eternal life and others unto eternal damnation. And I know that that is difficult. But that is the testimony of Scripture. And I do not say this with, without feeling or emotion in my chest. I know the difficulty. I have a friend who died a year ago next month who was not a believer it's hard i understand but that does not change what the text says the text says what it says god chooses whom he will save and he leaves the rest in their sin he is sovereign over salvation salvation is his to give to whomever he wills it's all up to him no one can claim a right to his mercy no one can claim a right to his grace or it ceases to be grace. It's God's salvation to give to whom he wills. He is sovereign and so he has the right to do all he wills in all things, including salvation. He is God. He is God. And so when any sinner is saved, it is by pure sovereign grace. It is the decision of God. Now I know that there are a lot of questions about this and especially if you're hearing it for the first time, um, and I don't have time to answer all of them in this sermon, but I will answer them if you'll come to me and ask me your questions later. But I know that there are probably some here who hear this doctrine 
and they think immediately, that's not fair. That's not fair. Why does God choose only to save some and not others? That doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem fair that God would choose everyone, or that he wouldn't choose everyone to be saved. It doesn't seem fair. And I want you to know that the Apostle Paul anticipates your objection in Romans 9, where he's speaking about predestination there as well. And in Romans 9.19, Paul writes, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? That is, find fault with sinners. For who can resist his will? Paul says, Why does God still hold sinners responsible? Why are some still damned? If God's the one who decides who's going to be saved, how is that fair? Paul expects us to not like this doctrine. And Paul gives us an answer. And it's an answer that puts us in our place. And it reminds us that God is the king and he does whatever he wills. In Romans 9.20 and following, Paul says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Who are you to tell God what to do, is Paul's answer. He created you. He is the potter. We are the clay. And he is free to do with his creation whatever he wills to do. That's the apostle's answer. He does whatever he pleases. And we have no right as his creatures to ever talk back to him. We hear this doctrine and say that doesn't sound fair. And Paul's response is God is the king. And he can do what he wills. That's the answer. And so we are to recognize our place and keep silent. And show God the reverence and respect that he deserves. Because he is free to do as he wills. He is God. And we are not. So then in summary we see that God is absolutely sovereign over everything. He exercises kingly dominion and rights over everything. This is his world and we are his creations and he is free to do whatever he pleases. As Paul tells us in Romans 11, all things exist for him, through him, and to him. And all things exist for his glory. So then he is free to work and do in his creation whatever he has determined will glorify him best. And so he does that. But I want you to remember as you deal with this doctrine, as, as maybe this rubs you wrong a little bit and goes against the grain of what you've been taught in the past, I want you to remember that just as God is sovereign, he is also holy, good, and wise. He is righteous and he never does wrong. His ways are higher than our ways and we do not always understand what he does. He tells us that. You will not always understand why I do things the way that I do. But then he tells us, trust me. Trust me that I know what I'm doing. Trust me that I'm still righteous even when you don't understand how I'm righteous in what I do. Trust me that I'm good in all that I do and I never do an injustice to anyone. Trust me. And we can trust him. And please hear me, anytime you want to fight against this doctrine in your heart, remember this. The same sovereign rule and will of God that you struggle with to understand is the same sovereign will that put Christ on the cross for you. It's the same will. It's what God had predestined to take place. So as you want to fight against it, remind yourself that 
It's the same will that sent Christ to the cross, which means it is a good will. God's sovereignty is a good sovereignty. Even when it's hard to accept, His will is the best ever. So then in conclusion, I'm going to bring this around full circle to the introduction. We are a church that exists to proclaim the sovereignty of God. Why? Because this is what God says about himself. And we don't have a right to modify what he says. We exist to say what he has said, so we exist to proclaim God to the world in all of his majesty and splendor and kingly power. The second reason we proclaim the sovereignty of God because we are more concerned with glorifying God by telling the truth about him than we are concerned about offending the feelings of men who vainly believe that they are in control. The third reason, because this God is a God worth worshiping. A God who does not control all things is no God at all. A God who is not sovereign is an idol. But our God reigns. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, and so we declare him. But not only in our proclamation to the world, we are a church that exists to declare the sovereignty of God to ourselves because it humbles us. It causes us to fall to the ground and say amen to God when he says in Isaiah 55, 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because it teaches us, second, to let God be God. It reminds us who runs things. And third, it gives comfort and rest to our souls. Because we know we can actually trust this God. Because he actually rules over everything and can keep his word to us. And fourthly, it makes us look up to the heavens in awe and wonder and worship at a God who is truly God over everything. And so I pray that every one of us to a man will join Jonathan Edwards and say, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you. Thank you so much for your word that declares your glory to us, that tells us of your majesty. Thank you for your spirit, Lord, who has opened our hearts to receive these truths and who has given us patience to sit under a long sermon and pay attention. God, thank you for your sovereignty and that you reveal it to us on every page of your word. Thank you that, that you are a God. We, we are grateful that you're a God that we can trust, that you're a God who, who, who has done away with all thoughts of, of random chance occurrence in our lives. We thank you that you're a God who rules over every aspect of our lives. We thank you, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to accept your rule and submit to it in all things. Have mercy on us. And help us to embrace this doctrine gladly. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen.